welcome to a new episode of The Brand Called You. We have brought to you some really interesting people over the last few months. And today I have uh, Mr. Piyush Tiwari, who is an absolute icon in saving lives. Thank you. Piyush, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Piyush uh, is a Bachelor of IT from Delhi University. Then he's a Master of Public Administration from Harvard University. Um, he is... Uh, a young global leader from the World Economic Forum. And I'm proud to say that, you know, I am a senior uh, from the World Economic Forum, the much, much older senior. In those days, we used to call them global leaders for tomorrow. Uh, Piyush is a Rolex uh, laureate and he is a fellow of the Reinhard Arnhold. Uh, and of course, he's the founder of the Save Life Foundation. Um, Piyush, before we get into Save Life, Talk to us a little bit about your early professional career uh, with the India Brand Equity Fund and the Calibrated Group. Right. So, you know, I um, uh, wanted to become a fighter pilot. A fighter pilot? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, my grandfather was a parachute scientist. So I grew up on Kering Air Force Base outside Agra, watching paratroopers coming down. And so I had this desire of flying uh, for for my entire childhood. And I cleared my NDA exam, went for my SSB Unfortunately, failed the medical exam for the uh, for the eyesight, and uh, came back pretty dejected to Delhi, and uh, picked up the course in IT uh, at Delhi University. But pretty much in my second year, I was uh, convinced that I was not meant to sit and code software. Although I respect software yeah. developers and creators mm-hmm. tremendously, mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, but but I did well in college, and uh, soon after I started looking for opportunities outside of the technology coding world. Mm-hmm. And um, I applied to various places, got rejected almost everywhere, uh, except for uh, this new initiative that the Prime Minister had set up. They had set aside some funds to build a nation brand for India. Okay. And um, and I ended up uh, getting an internship there. And um, uh, that three-month period led to a full-time job offer from them. And I ended up uh, uh, doing some really interesting things in Davos at the World Economic Forum uh, in Germany, Japan. Essentially, positioning India as a competitive, and this is when brand. that Incredible India campaign started, isn't it? So the Incredible India campaign was a tourism campaign, okay, and the IBEF was a business campaign. So the idea was to attract more investment into India, mm-hmm. and uh, the Commerce Secretary was the chairperson of the uh, fund, and um, I was, you know, I, I grew from being an, a lowly intern to a project manager eventually, ended up uh, handling some really incredible projects, um, and that's how the IBEF happened. Um, after about four, four and a half years, I felt that I, I need to learn how to build organizations mm-hmm. from scratch. And that's when the Calibrated Group happened. And, um, you know, I ended up joining as an engagement manager and grew on to become a manager. So director. tell us a little bit about Calibrated Group. So Cal- Calibrated is a private equity fund based out of the U.S. Okay. And what they really do is that they uh, support U.S.-based companies uh, to get a uh, you know, presence in India. And uh, from my previous job's perspective, that was a great thing because you were, you know, we were positioning India as a competitive investment destination. Mm. And here I was getting to the other side of the table, uh, really trying to co-invest and, you know, helping these companies set up. Mm-hmm. And my job initially was to work with these new companies. Uh, but eventually, as uh, you know, I grew on to become the MD of the India operations. It was mostly to run these companies as well uh, that we would jointly set up with U.S. funds um, and grow them and then, you know, hopefully get an exit out of that. Interesting. Uh, so that's really how the, the okay. early sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, you there was an incident that happened which led you to set up Save Life. So tell us about that. 
Yeah, you know, uh, <clears throat> on uh, on 5th April 2007, I was uh, on my way back from work uh, at Calabrese and uh, I got a call from my father saying that um, my cousin, little cousin Shivam, uh, who was under our care, had met with a serious uh, road crash. Mm. And uh, I told him, I'm already on my way. I'll try and rush uh, soon into the scene. And uh, as I had made my way, um, in about 15 minutes, I got another call from him. Saying that, uh, Piyush, don't tell your mom, but Shivam is no more. Oh my God, sorry. And uh, when I learned about, uh, you know, this, uh, his demise, I, I froze. I parked my car, car onto the side, I took an auto, and basically I just simply couldn't drive anymore. Uh, and uh, the very next day, uh, after the, uh, the formalities were over, I visited the scene of the crash and tried to understand what had happened. And what I discovered really horrified me. What I discovered was that this 15-year-old schoolboy in a school uniform wearing a school bag was trying to cross the road and uh, a vehicle coming from the wrong side struck him uh, after which he fell to the ground and uh, in an attempt to flee the scene, the vehicle ran over him once again and, and, and fled. And um, Shivam lay on the road for about 45 minutes asking for help and um, uh, about 300, 400 people would have stopped uh, some offered him water, some threw water at him. But nobody did anything that could save his life. Uh, nobody called the police, nobody called the ambulance, nobody took him to a hospital. And he bled to death in full public view uh, on the side of the road. And that really became an unacceptable scenario for me. And that really what, uh, you know, that is really what led to the formation of Save Life. Uh, so how did you go about setting the foundation? You know, um, the... Once I learned about these things, I decided that I needed some answers. I couldn't understand why, uh, you know, we would allow someone to just die like that without making a basic attempt to save their life. Um, and we all know what being helpless feels like. And I, and I felt helpless and I really wanted to get answers. So I traveled for about uh, six months across the country, took a break from work, um, met with lawyers, police officers, doctors, other victims' families. And I learned basically three things. I learned that in the previous decade, uh, close to a million people in India had been killed in road crashes. One million lives lost mm -hmm. in a 10-year period. The second thing I discovered was that Shivam's circumstances of dying the way he did was not isolated. About 50% of those who were killed in road crashes in India mm -hmm. died despite having treatable injuries. And the third thing I discovered was that despite the issue having such epidemic proportions, there was literally no conversation happening around this at all at that back then. Uh, there was, you know, media would just put an article about a death. Uh, some research institution was doing some, you know, enclosed doors, some research, but there was no, you know, nobody was asking questions. And Save Life came into being after that process. So Shivan passed away on 5th April 2007 and on 29th of February 2008 is when I uh, co-founded mm -hmm. Save Life with my mentor, Mr. Krishan Mehta, who's, uh, who was then a global tax partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And uh, essentially began uh, by trying to figure out where we can intervene. Mm -hmm. And we really started by uh, convincing the police that because in the absence of ambulances, it is the police cars that take victims to hospital on many occasions. Mm -hmm. Can we prevent them from just lifting somebody and dumping into their car and taking them to hospital and transform them into lifesavers by using their basic skills, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bleeding control, CPR, C-span immobilization, to save their life. And interestingly, you know, I want to tell you, uh, we did our first training program for the police uh, on 21st of March, 2009. 
And on 3rd June uh, 2009, I received a fax from the DCP South saying that uh, a Delhi police team was responding to a case of a motorcyclist having been run over by a truck on Siri Fort Road, had picked him up and uh, were carrying him, that person, in the PCR van to Ames Trauma Center. And before entering Ames Trauma Center, they were able to revive this person and get him to breathe again, using the skills that we had taught him. And this batch, this group of three people turned out to be the first batch we had trained on 23rd of March, 2011. And that really took off, helped us take off uh, in the program. That's quite an amazing story. I mean, my condolences. There was, or there's always a fear of the people who see an accident that if they go out and help, yeah. the police will give them a very hard time. Yeah. Has that changed? So, uh, so I'm glad you, you mentioned that because um, we wanted to, in, in the attempt to get answers, uh, and our core goal really was initially to get the people to respond, right? Because if the people don't call the police or people don't call the ambulance, yeah. the training of the police is not, yeah. you know, won't have any effect. Yeah. So um, what those lives saved by the police did was that it got us to the high table. It got us to meetings where we could ask for specific uh, changes. And we demanded the Good Samaritan Law. We said that India should have a legislation that insulates and protects those who help the injured from any kind of legal and procedural hassles. Mm-hmm. And while initially we got a lot of encouragement uh, from the politicians, a lot of, you know, yes, hum bilkul karenge, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, uh, nobody actually moved on it. Uh, so in 2012, I was forced to go to the Supreme Court okay. and uh, we filed a writ petition uh, making the government of India and all states in the country party to the case. And Supreme Court issued notices to the uh, government. And um, while the case went on for about four years, back and forth, back and forth, we went outside the court onto the streets, into the parliament, into the media, and really created this campaign around getting India good Samaritan law. Mm-hmm. Satyanit Jaite, uh, run by Amir Khan, uh, covered uh, the campaign okay. and eventually in 2016 uh, about uh, three and a half years ago on 30th of March uh, the Supreme Court exercised its special powers uh, to uh, uh, to uh, institute uh, and implement a good Samaritan law for India okay. which has now thankfully got legislative backing also mm-hmm. uh, through the new Motor Vehicle Amendment Act uh, which was passed by the yeah. parliament recently mm-hmm. uh, in which also we were involved in both in advocating and drafting. So what you're saying is that today I see an accident and I give help, I will be doing it because I want to make it to help and I will not be harassed by the police. Absolutely. Uh, you will not be harassed by the you, The police can't force you to give your details. The hospital cannot detain you or force you to make payments. And the court system uh, has been, as per the guidelines, is required to, in case you willingly become a witness, to wrap up your deposition in a single day in a single sitting, preferably. Wow. And if not, then either party that asks for extensions are, uh, you know, heavy costs are to be borne. Yeah. I think this down. this will change the responses completely. I hope so. Yeah, we're really hoping yeah. uh, that. that uh, so you know, one of the things that you said was that you know we need better roads and sidewalks. We need better driver training and education, and we need better you know, emergency services. How is this beginning to change? You know. Um, as a non-profit, uh, Save Life had two options. One was to, um, you know, start doing a bit of implementation on the ground, yeah. raise CSR money, donations, blah, 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 and try and actually do some of these things on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
And the other option was to really create a framework within which these things can be sustained by the system that's supposed to do these things in the first place. And what we chose was both. We said that we will advocate for a comprehensive road safety law that addresses licensing, driver's education, uh, road design and engineering, child safety, crash investigation, good Samaritan law, all of those things that have been missing in the framework need to be brought in. And But what we will also do is that we will demonstrate that even in a complex country like India, it is possible to save lives on our chaotic, uh, not so well-designed roads. And as a part of that process, we adopted three stretches of roads, uh, the Mumbai Pune Expressway, the National Highway 48, and a 12-kilometer stretch of road in Delhi uh, to make them fatality-free by 2021. Okay. And I'm very pleased to share with you that um, on the first part of our work, which is the creation of this framework of getting India proper roads, proper licensing, driver's training, child safety. Uh, the parliament recently passed and the president signed the Motor Vehicle Amendment Act, mm -hmm. uh, which essentially creates that missing framework. And to answer your question, uh, a number of these things that we spoke about will start getting established mm -hmm. uh, on the ground going forward. And on the second part, uh, the we've had massive success on the Mumbai Pune Expressway. We've been able to deliver close to a 50% drop in deaths uh, in the last uh, three years. And uh, we really, um, uh, you know, we take that as a challenge that we will bring down the deaths to zero, mm -hmm. on near zero levels uh, in the next couple of years. So you must have also done a lot of analysis of the reason for these deaths. Yes. Is it because of the pedestrians crossing at the wrong places? Is it because of speeding? Or is it because of uh, traffic driving on the wrong side of the road? Yeah. You know, they say, they say recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. And a recipe always has more than one ingredient. So in, in, in the case of road crashes also, pretty much every single crash mm -hmm. has a human element involved, many of the things that you mentioned, mm -hmm. has a vehicular element involved and has an infrastructure element involved. And what we did was that we established a forensic crash investigation mechanism where every time a crash would occur that was either serious or fatal, mm -hmm. uh, our team would investigate the crash, extract uh, these three different uh, causal factors mm -hmm. and recommend to the government countermeasures to deal with that. Okay. So, for example, we discovered that on our highways, while a crash may occur because of fatigue, the cause of injury or death was e either a drop-off into a, you know, a, a deep gorge or mm -hmm. a river or a drain, um, or it could be interaction with a concrete structure or with a parked so our recommendation really became that we have to, while people may still be fatigued, we have to ensure that they don't die or get injured because of falling off or hitting a concrete structure. Mm -hmm. So why don't we attenuate around that and create a system that can absorb that crash. Okay. So that led to a significant number of changes on the Mumbai Pune Expressway. Uh, hats off to Maharashtra government for really listening to us and implementing these mm -hmm. uh, recommendations. And in the past um, uh, two years, uh, the project has fixed over 1,400 engineering errors wow. on the 100-kilometer stretch of road, uh, which which led to a 70% drop in deaths due to engineering factors, and an overall now close to 50% drop in deaths overall. Amazing. Sometimes I wonder, you know, why uh, or how we can approach the prime minister to for him to make a statement from Red Fort or on his monkey bar, saying, "Please don't drive on the wrong side of the road." Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his messaging is so incredible. Yeah. I hope he does that. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, as you were building Save Life, um, what were some of your key challenges 
you know the uh, single biggest challenge um, initially was to get political will around the issue because you're talking about a, a, a subject that's not merely about creating a little bit of awareness we're talking about system change we're talking about new law we're talking about new way of constructing roads we're talking about new ways of issuing licenses um, we're talking about dealing with corruption and all of these things so um, the political will was the biggest challenge and i think our advocacy effort um, starting from the courts and moving on to the streets and into the parliament and so on and so forth was really focused on building that political will and i'm glad to say that that political will was demonstrated by the parliament in passing this law uh, unanimously eventually after a, a, you know nearly a seven year uh, campaign so that was the first big challenge the second big challenge which almost every non-profit and startup suffers from uh even in the private sector spaces uh you know infusion of funds and um uh, we got you know we we still face that but i think we got lucky because um philanthropists ranging from michael bloomberg mm-hmm. to anand mahindra to tata trust they support us in the work that we do uh, we have many companies that back us yeah. and the third big challenge that uh, we faced and we continue to face is talent mm-hmm. is getting really good talented people to work on the issue boards right you have a lot of people who want to work on Uh, children for example but what good is right to education if we can't provide right to safe commute to school right uh, 20 children under the age of 14 are killed every day wow. in the vicinity of their schools 20 uh, per day 20 per day under the age of 14 right um so so we we are looking at more talent more you know bright people to work in this space uh, and really create a a sector out of you know this mm. this uh, uh, this problem solving which has been missing so far mm. so these are a few challenges that we've uh, faced yes. and uh, tried to I mean, I hope the kind of statistics you're giving, I think, will go to give yeah. goosebumps to everybody. Yeah, and I'm moving through your uh, yeah, yeah through this channel, sure. more people uh, learn sure. about the issue and I'm sure. participate. I'm sure. So, you know, uh, Piyush, what is involved in becoming a first responder? How does one become, or how does everyone become a first responder? The first thing is intent. Correct. Uh, you need uh, to be to have that uh, intention of helping an injured person. we have ensured that they get the confidence because a good smart law exists now mm-hmm. so earlier you could train someone but uh, they may not have the confidence to use that training so we've ensured that through the good smart law that happens and i just want to convey through your uh, channel yeah. that um, anybody who's harassed by the police yeah. or by the hospitals mm-hmm. or by the courts can really log on to goodsmartlaw.in connect with us and we will fight the case on their behalf we will take the you know take it up Uh, with the highest of agencies and mm-hmm. it required file a contempt petition with the supreme court but what it really takes is uh, it's a very basic skill set um, we talk about bleeding control so there's a uh, simple bleeding control program that we've tied up with cornell uh, for it's called stop the bleed mm-hmm. where just by applying pressure you can you can prevent someone's bleeding mm-hmm. um, there's ceasefire immobilization which is how do you lift someone carefully in order to make, make sure that their spine is not injured any further And the third simple thing to do is to uh, know how to revive somebody who's not bleeding, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, who's not breathing, uh, and that comes through uh, CPR or cardiopulmonary resuscitation, as we call it. And all of these are very simple, basic, easy to learn skills. Mm-hmm. And pretty much anyone using just their hands can uh, save save someone's life and, and be a be a first responder. So tell me, you know, like in the US, you've got one emergency number nine one one. Yes, I mean, as an Indian, I remember that. all the serials that one sees do we have a single number in india so um it's it's coming into uh, force now it's 112 okay. 
Okay. And uh, a few states, including Delhi, have adopted it. Uh, but the idea really is that all states should be on the same number, like 911 in the US. And uh, so for fire, medical, and police, there will be one number in the country, which is called 112. And it's it's just about, uh, you know, it's getting rolled out now. And uh, I'm glad that about five or six states have already started implementing it, including Delhi. And this can be dialed from any device. From any device, from anywhere. Yeah. And uh, they also have a 112 app. Uh, which actually we recommend people to download because okay. it will tell the agencies your exact location. Okay. A call may not, but uh, using the app will give the exact triangulation of where you are uh, you know, when you need help. Interesting. So, in fact, you know, that's an interesting uh, comment you made because the next question to you was that, you know, booming, which is there on everyone's device today. If I was to ask Google, tell me a restaurant near me, it'll tell me. Will it be able to tell me uh, in, at the time of an accident, if I'm a first responder, that tell me uh, an emergency place next to me? So it can tell you the nearest hospital okay. uh, just, just by typing into Google. But the challenge with that is that hospitals in India, unlike elsewhere, especially in the West, are not designated. Mm -hmm. And by designation, I mean that an injury like a road crash requires polytrauma specialty. Mm -hmm. And so you the injured must be taken to a place that has that ability. You simply can't waste time transferring the patient from one point to the other. And because we have not designated our hospitals as either trauma centers or not, uh, formally, that becomes a challenge. Almost every nursing home or clinic says emergency. Mm. But when you take the person there, they may not have a surgeon, yeah. they may not have CT scan, they may not have MRI. Mm. So it becomes a huge challenge. So what, and I don't think Google needs to do it, but I think the country needs to do it, is to actually mm. start creating a leveling system, a credentialing system for hospitals yeah. to determine which is a level one trauma center, like the AIMS trauma center, or a level four trauma center, which is an advanced ambulance. Mm -hmm. So that's something that needs to be done and still a lot more work is left in that, in that process. So I'm going to ask you a tough question. You've been recognized globally by several organizations around the world. Which one of these recognitions is the closest to your heart? <laughs> It's a tough one because that's why I said I'm going to ask you a tough question. <laughs> I would say it's the Rolex Award for Enterprise. Okay. Um, we won the Rolex Award in 2010. And at that time, we had zero funders. We had zero support. Uh, we had, um, we were still in the proof of concept stage, trained the police. Uh, we were creating a network of first responders who would be connected through a mobile phone and be able to respond. And uh, Rolex really believed in what we were trying to do. And, um, uh, you know, we were nominated by a journalist who I still haven't met. So it was out of unaware uh, that journalists heard about us and nominated us. And we went through the process and uh, Rolex really came through. And, uh, you know, uh, not only did the award have a financial element to it, which really helped us hire our first set of staff, but um, uh, it had training. It had various opportunities. Thanks to Rolex, I was able to ride an ambulance. Uh, in Boston, uh, London, and Geneva okay. uh, for over a month uh, and uh, tail emergency doctors really trying to understand how a good system works mm. so that I can have a vision for what should be there in India and, and, and therefore our work can get aligned with that. Okay. So it was a lot more strategic than, a, than merely a financial grant. It was really focused on uh, you know, propelling us out into the world. And so I consider them as our seed funders and seed funders are always yeah. special. I agree. Fantastic. So I have a few more questions to you, uh, more on you personally. Yeah. Um, you know, from the uh, 
corporate world into the NGO space. You've seen a lot of them. Kudos to you for the amount of work that you're doing for such a noble thing like saving lives. What would be the three adjectives that would describe your strengths? Well, firstly, thank you. I, I, you know, I still consider us to be work in progress, uh, not, not entirely successful, but we're hoping we'll get there. Um, our, our vision is really in the next five years to reduce deaths in India by 50% mm -hmm. on the roads. Uh, so it's a tall order. But, but let me just stop you for a minute. How many deaths are there uh, in India every, every year? So about 150,000 people are lost uh, every single year okay. in road crashes. Uh, that's about 410 deaths every day, uh, which is a capacity of a Boeing 747-400. So we have a plane crash happening in India every single day. And uh, so that's that's what we're uh, really dealing with. And we're hoping that in the next five years, we can deliver a 50% drop in deaths nationally on this, on this issue. So back to your strengths. So yeah, um, you know, I get a lot of my strengths from my, my parents, my family. Um, so I would say uh, uh, love, uh, you know, being the first love for family, love for uh, people in general. I, I really do uh, feel that uh, it's very important to approach everything you do with love as mm -hmm. opposed to fear. And I think that's really something that uh, that defines what we do. Uh, the second is uh, persistence. Uh, we um, um, don't give up at Save Life. Uh, we, we really yeah. stick to uh, the agenda. We've had a lot of issues. Uh, I was dealing with an issue of trucks carrying protruding rods and we got a ban imposed on them in 2015 and I had to deal with death threats at that time for almost six months. And so, uh, but persisting regardless of that, I think was very uh, critical for us. And I think that's something that um, that I that I uh, learned from my parents and it's something I, I practice at work. Mm -hmm. And the third thing really, I would say would be, um, would be integrity. And integrity, not as a, yeah. you know, as a big concept, mm -hmm. but I think in just being true and honest to, your day-to-day -day functioning, you know, if, if you've done something wrong, just say that you've done something wrong. And I think we um, we approach everything with that intent, with that with that integrity. Uh, so it's not a, you know, I don't take integrity as a big ideal concept, but as something that, uh, you know, can be demonstrated in the simplest of things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that's how... Quite amazing. Quite amazing. So, you know, with, with such amazing things happening in your life, I was going to ask you a question of what keeps you going every morning, but I think the answer is there. You know, there's so much you look forward to. Yeah, there is. There is. Uh, I have had moments when I've I've really questioned why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, uh, is it worth it? Uh, you know, there there was a time when Supreme Court judgment was not coming through, Parliament was not moving. Uh, no, nobody really cared. Seemed to care about the issue. And I was wrong at that time, but that's what I felt like. But, you know, it goes back to one of my professors at, um, at Harvard Kennedy School, Ron Heifetz, who, who always said that, you know, every time you doubt what you're doing or you are you're feeling down, uh, just talk to the victims. Mm -hmm. and, and they will give you the strength and the power to keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what I've done now today is to structure that process a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, I, I meet victims at least once a month. Uh, I'm meeting them today, uh, later in the day. Okay. Uh, you know, these families have been through a lot and these families are the ones that are going through a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very critical for me and my team to stay in touch with that grassroots, mm -hmm. that, that why we're doing it. Because it's, it's very easy to get, get lost. Uh, and so I think that's what really keeps us going and what keeps me going. Uh, you know, so, you know, as a follow-up question, you know, a lot of times in these accidents, the breadwinner Absolutely. is the person who's lost. Do you uh, get involved in 
trying to uh, um, get a job for the next people or do you have some other NGOs who support? So what we've done is that we have uh, through our website, our app and uh, also available via phone, we have a victim support center. Mm -hmm. What the victim support center really does is it provides access to or information on uh, free hospitalization, free treatment, free rehabilitation because that is a almost a lifelong cost for many people who have uh, been disabled as a result of a road crash. Um, and beyond that, the compensation piece. That's something that we believe that everybody needs to know what their right is for, their, for compensation. And oftentimes people are taken down a path that they don't know about, especially in this, uh, you know, uh, very opaque process. So we've simplified the process uh, for people to understand how to claim compensation, what is the kind of composition that is due, due to them. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we do. Uh, we haven't yet uh, dealt with the issue of employment, primarily because of bandwidth issues at our end, uh, because to set up something that will have a huge intake and then mm -hmm. an output, we simply don't have the bandwidth yeah. at this point yeah. of time. But we do believe that compensation and treatment are two things that everybody should have access to. And that's something that we have uh, made sure that we intervene and provide enough information and access to people. You know, when I was, when I founded Guardian and when we were running uh, stores, yeah. at one stage, we were managing all the pharmacies and all the UP government medical colleges. Yeah. And I've often used to wonder, navigating a hospital for a trauma victim yeah. was impossible. Absolutely. I mean, they were, the trauma victim was lying on the stretcher and doctors were making them run around. Absolutely. How do you have tackle that? So what India needs now, our, our next big policy goal, and of course, on-ground goal that we're implementing on the Mumbai Pune Express and elsewhere, is um, what we call the right to emergency care. Now, it's not merely a right from the, again, from a, you know, uh, you know vague kind of a uh, set of rights perspective, but it's really about system creation. The challenge with government hospitals is that they're overwhelmed. And most people are taken to government hospitals because nobody's turned away from there. But then you have situations where people are just lying there and not getting proper treatment. So creating a system that actually addresses this need, regardless of private or public hospital, has a financing system behind it that ensures that anybody who's providing treatment is able to address that is the first step. The second is that trauma care as a field of medicine got only recognized in India in 2014. So there are very limited number of, there, there's, a, there's a very limited amount of talent in this space of polytrauma care, especially trauma surgery. And while AIMS Trauma Center in Delhi is showing the way, there's still a lot more capacity that has to be built. So there is a long way to go. And I think the reason why we feel legislation will help is because we can intervene as an organization only in one or two or three areas. But if you have an overarching framework, like the right to education, a right to education still has a long way to go to ensure education for every child. But it's creating missing frameworks, right? It's saying that everybody can approach uh, and ask for that right, right. And I think that's something that needs to be done, especially right to emergency care is serves our fundamental right to life. Correct. So it's very critical to uh, provide it that that level of recognition mm -hmm. designation. I think that's something really what what, we, what what our next goal is over the next three to five years. That's fantastic. So my last question to you, you know, after such an amazing set of things you are doing, uh, do you have any regrets? Um, I have no regrets. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I have no regrets. So Piyush, thank you very much. Thank you. I think you're doing an incredible amount of great work. 
and sincerely hope many, many more people will get associated. Thank you. I certainly would love to get associated more closely. Thanks a lot. So good luck and all the best. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Simply search for The Brand Called You. Thank you and see you next week.